Hi everyone, my name is Joel Cleaver from Jim's Group. And today what we thought we'd kick off is our first in what we're going to call the Jim's Story Series. Now, the Jim's Story Series, what we want to do is we want to get a lot more depth into, into Jim's life and his background um, based on the book, which is Jim's book, which is around, we're going to go 20 chapters, and we're going to go chapter by chapter, and we're going to ask questions about the chapter in there. So if you haven't read Jim's book, please get a copy. Um, obviously, every customer fan as well, which is Jim's autobiography on our website. And it goes in a lot more detail than that, because as you said just previously, um, this, is, this is a lot more personal. A lot more personal. And I think, I think when, I'm, when I read these again, the, the personal side in here, mm. all the stories, especially of when you're teenagers and when you're younger, definitely do go on to form a lot of your interests today. So I thought it'd be interesting to go into that. So let's start it off. Okay, so the early years. So where were you born and where? And what, sorry, what year, sorry? Well, I was born in 1952, and I'm ashamed to say I was born in England, but that does not make me English. My You're ashamed mother... <laughs> to say it, right. Very handy. I am not a pom. <laughs> My mother was Australian. She was, yeah. she was um, actually um, having a, yeah, yeah, spending time over there in, in the UK, and I met my father in a, in a youth hostel in Wales. So your father was Tom Penman, and your mother was Margaret Moxham. Yeah. And I was reading the book as well. It said that your great-grand, so your name is David. Mm-hmm. So your great-grandfather was actually David Penman? My great-great-grandfather was David Penman. Right. He's, he's my most famous ancestor. He was the, he actually g- rose from poverty to become the captain of a ship and, and yeah, developed some quite considerable wealth. And he actually died in a, in a, when the ship went down the Bay of Biscay in a storm. Really? So he was a famous sea captain? Well, not that famous, oh. but, he, but he, was, he, was, he was successful. In our family, he's, he's very famous. Because he, he came from nothing to build, and he had all these properties. And he had only one son, Christopher, who actually never never worked in his whole life and basically blew all the properties. So. Oh, really? Right. Okay. <laughs> so so yeah. he's like the example of the, of the, of the good ancestor and the, and the, and the not-so-good ancestor. He's a bit of a hero to you when you were younger. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, he, he's, he's, he's my exemplar. Mm. And reading the book as well, it says your mother, uh, Margaret, was a bit of a maverick in her time. And it was actually, I was quite surprised reading it, was denied enlistment. In World War Two, she wanted to enlist in World War Two. Yeah, she wanted to enlist. It was a big adventure. Everybody was going off, um, but she was a teacher. It was a revert profession. They wouldn't let her go. Right. So yeah, she wanted to. Uh, that, that's quite well. That's quite different at the time. I don't know how much how that was a common thing or not. But you, you do describe as your mum a maverick in there. And was that just one that adventurous nature? Yeah, well, very much so. She she was she was different. My mum. She she actually was one. Of the, I mean, going to the UK from Australia has become pretty normal in recent years. But she was one of the first that went out there immediately after the war, and, and one of the first ships that actually went from Australia. And and uh, she was just a, a great spirit of adventure. And and she's always been like that. Even when she was in her seventies, she was hitchhiking across Canada and all kinds of things. She's like hitchhiking that. across Canada. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Maybe. Well, how the, what was going on there? Well, she just she just hitchhiked around the world. My, my mother's an inveterate traveller. She, she travelled when she was young, as soon as she could, met my father that way, and they used to go on trips, and then after she got divorced from her father, she went off hitchhiking herself, all by herself, all over the country. Actually, what mum always said was that when she was young and single, she had no responsibility, she could take risks. When she was a mother, and, and you know, she couldn't. But then when she was, again, free of all that, she was single, she could go off and take risks and hitch and do anything she liked. Now, do you think it's quite ironic that you hate travelling, whereas your mum absolutely loved travelling, hitchhiking around the world in the 70s? It is, isn't it? Yeah. I'm, I've got to explain this. My mother is a, is a great traveller. She was a terrific traveller, and uh, I hate it, yes. <laughs> it is an irony. But I'm different for all my family like that. And all, my, all the rest of my family love travel, and I hate it. Mm. Why do you think you hate travel so much? I just don't like it. I, I, love, I love books. I love travelling in my mind. I just, I just dislike aeroplanes intensely. 
Mm. I just I just don't like it. I like I like home. I like being at the home. I like being at my farm. I just like the normal pattern of domestic life. Mm. Let's talk about something else. Was your dad was a, a ten pound pom referred to back in the day as well? And his first job when he came to Australia was a, he was actually a lecturer mm. at Adelaide University. Yeah, he was a chemical engineer. Chemical engineer. That's right. So he he um, interesting fact, fact. My father. Yes, uh, he was a he was a engineer. He was a senior lecturer at. Um, Adelaide University, and later I got offered a job as a consultant, Austin Anderson, in Sydney. We moved to Sydney when I was about 14. And then after that, after a year there, he was made chief engineer of Carton United Breweries. Yeah, and that's a pretty good job if anyone is... is I think that was the big factory in Abbotsford and in Richmond. There's a big brewery there, so your dad was the chief engineer there. Yes, and, and he, as he said at the time, he was the best paid engineer in the entire country. Um, and my father is an exceptionally brilliant man, very strong, very knowledgeable, but completely tactless. So it right. didn't take him long to get on the wrong side of the management. He used to mutter about 18th century management. So he, he lost that one, but then landed into business as a consultant, which was much better. I was going to say, it's quite ironic as well. And there's another irony because your dad was the chief engineer at Carlton United Breweries, but I know you don't like alcohol whatsoever. You don't drink. No. <laughs> Both my parents... Um, enjoy their wine and, and I'm a teetotaler but that was partly reaction too you know I, I, I rebelled against my father something fierce when I was a teenager I wouldn't speak to him once for six months so I, I, becoming a teetotaler was kind of like a bit of a reaction in the beginning against him mm. now I want to talk but, about but, yeah. and put that in perspective yeah. I mean I mean, I, I became very good friends with my, fa- my father in, in later years and we became you know, he's a great guy and I really appreciate what he did for me but in my teenage years He's a pretty authoritarian character, and we did not get on well. Let's talk about that six months, because it is in the book. It says you did, yeah, as you just said previously, then you didn't talk to him for six months. What was the argument about? Well, actually, what happened, we were at the dinner table one time, and I said something. I must have been really kneeling. He just turned to me and said, shut up. So I shut up for six months. (laughs) (laughs) We're not speaking to him. I'm a bad silent protest there for six months, are you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I got on with my mum, though. She was sort of of like my best friend at that time, and, and I was... Yeah, she was great. Yeah, because I was reading that, and you said during school, obviously, you didn't probably like school too much, but you, your mum was really, as you said, you're really close with your mum. You could talk to her about other things and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I used to come home from school, and I'd, I'd, I'd walk up and pace up and down the kitchen because I always liked pacing and, um, and just talk to my mother about things. Mm. Let's go back to the age of eight because I think it's quite significant in, in, your, in your journey. Is, is this incident, or not this incident, but this sort of that time, is when you were joining the Scouts, and back then you were doing the Bobber Job a yeah. type of thing. Cub Scouts, actually. Cub Scouts. Cub Scouts. So Bob a job was the thing you go and knock on neighbours and you offer to do a small job and they give you a bob, 10 cents, which obviously was a lot more in those days. I mean, put that in perspective, in those days you could buy a what's now a big block of Cadbury chocolate for 20 cents or for two shillings, this mm. is pre-decimal. So what happened was I knocked on the door of a the, the guy who lived behind, Mr Tapley, and I asked to do some work and he offered me this ongoing job, which was two shillings per week and mostly what I used to do was to rake his driveway. So it was an odd path like that. That took me about an hour. So it was because he was had a gravel, gravel driveway. There was a significant moment with Mr. Tapley, which sort of maybe formed a lot of, it, of your passion in your business to, to this very day. And that was a situation where I think you had to pick up something and you dropped a few things and he came out and... Yeah, there wasn't much to do in like the raking. He just said, carry this rubbish from here mm. to there. And I just dropped a bit on the way. I was, you know, I was like an eight-year-old kid. And he just... And my father, you see, was very fierce. So very authoritarian. Mr. Tatley was very mild. So when he just he just looked at me very sadly and said, "If you're going to do it like that, I might as well do it myself." And didn't didn't raise his voice at all. And I think it was that contrast that really made me feel so ashamed. I can still remember that feeling of 
of shame and just so determined I would never let him down again. And as far as I know, I never did. I was very careful. And do you think that's where you developed your... Because you've said in here that your emotional attitude towards customer service comes from probably that incident as an eight-year-old. Well, it started from there, yeah. yeah. I mean, what, what makes a person's character is sort of all kinds of things. But, but yeah, I, that's the first I can remember of being, of being really concerned about customer service. But I used to I used to do lots of stuff. I mean, I've always done gardening. We had this old push mower and I used to mow our, our lawn which wasn't easy because it was full of trees and twigs and stuff, so it was always getting stuck. And it was one of those old push mowers you, you push around. So that was one of my jobs. And then, uh, not that I liked that too much, and I wasn't get paid for that. I was going to say, because it didn't come about because you are doing this stuff for Mr. Tapley and another neighbour, and your dad said, oh, if you, might as, you might as well do it. No, no, or... no, I don't, I don't, we just did chores. Oh, okay. You know, I was, I was a boy, so mowing the lawns and taking the... Um, we had a wood fire, so i take the, uh, the, um, the ash from the, uh, from the fire and... and Get rid of it, and then we put we had mallee mally roots, and I'd put them into the into the store. So that was that was part of my work, mm. and going out and getting my dad's paper in the morning and stuff. You know, we we, we worked. You know, mm. <laughs> in those days, kids did tend to do jobs more than perhaps they do these days. And I was reading as well when you were ten, you went to England for a year, mm. which was quite significant. It's you went there. Your dad was working at Atomic Research in Harwell, yes, yeah. in Berkshire, yeah. Yeah. So tell us about that time that year you spent there. Well, we lived in a little village called Aston Aston Upthorpe which is in Berkshire, and uh, it was very historical, just, just down the street from us, just a few, very short walk was a church in which um, it said the King Ethelred prayed while his brother Alfred was fighting a battle against the Danes on a nearby hill. It was really chock full of history. And my father's a great, great history buff, so and, and every weekend we'd go off travelling around the country and looking at cathedrals and churches and stuff. I can still remember, I can still tell you the age of an English church by looking at the at the shape of the windows and 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 the, and the pillars, you can tell Roman from Gothic, and then you, you tell roughly when they were when they were built. I can still remember that stuff. And then just going to Stonehenge and Avesbury, and it was just an amazing thing. Following Roman roads, looking for flints from the, the ancient British might have had. Just it was an amazing year. Of um, I remember more of that one year than I do the whole the rest of my childhood. Yeah, that stood out to me when I read this again. Was that was very significant that one year where? But you're saying every weekend you're going to Stonehenge or you're going to an art gallery, you're going to look at cathedrals. Or yeah, well, I think it's quite small, so you can travel a long, long way. We had this this old car which we used to just get up and go. And, and my dad was just in bachelor in history, so so I, I my interest in history really stems from that time, I think. And which is quite significant because that's what, obviously the bio history and all that sort of stuff. Now mm. that's where that love, you know, when you're a ten year old in England. So it started from that too. Yeah. I used to read a lot too. I was a I was a passionate reader. I, I always had my nose in the book. Not very social. Complete nerd. <laughs> if I was born in this day and age, I'd have been a total computer geek. But fortunately, I wasn't. So I just read, and that was all I had: was reading and reading and reading. And so for all that time, I was reading books about history. Um, and 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 very quickly, by the time I was fourteen, I was I was into adult books too. So I just I just read voraciously all the time. Mm. I read, read about a book a day for most of my most of my teenage years on well, average. And yeah. it's still something you do today with the audio books, right? You just substitute it. Yeah. Well, today I, I I would read probably on average or listen to maybe three books a week. I've just finished Rise um, and Fall of the Third Reich, which is a fascinating book. Mm. That took me about close to a week because it's a big book. Yeah. Now, in 1966, then, you moved back, you moved to Sydney. So I don't think a lot of people knew you spent some time in Sydney. Mm. And um, thing, I think that something that found even resonates to this day was a funny, little funny thing. You had a fitness test or something, and you found out that you're one of the most unfittest kids in the class. It was pulse said, rate. It was pulse rate, okay. We, we measured right. pulse rate. And I can remember my pulse rate was 70. 
Uh, Mummy, it's about 50. Last time I mentioned it was 53. Mm. So at the age of 68. So I've actually improved a bit since then. <laughs> but I was very shocked to discover at the age of 14 I was one of the least kids, fit kids in the class because I didn't like sport. I never, never, never liked group sport. And I just determined at that stage that I was going to be fitter. I was not going to let myself be less fit than other kids. So I started jogging, which was very unusual. We're talking about 1966. I mean, nobody, people, people jog all the time now. Th- mm. Those days it was almost unknown, but I used, to, I used to jog around the streets where I lived, which was difficult because the dogs would come out and try and chase you and stuff. I was going to say, yeah, do you get a few some dogs chasing you? Do you get many weird, weird looks doing it? Because you yeah, said it wouldn't have been a common I, thing back in the day. Yeah, I can remember, I can remember being chased by dogs and I was <laughs> kicking at them to get away from me. This <laughs> <laughs> was so unusual. Yeah. But I, I never, never liked sport except I played squash, which I got from my father. And, uh, but I became much fitter. Mm. And something significant as well happened when you were about to move back. Um, I know you don't like gifts that much, but you got a gift from someone called Harold Richards as a good buy present, which was the book called the Pel- uh, Peloponnesian Wars. Yeah, by Thucydides. Yeah, that's a significant, significant time or significant moment. Yeah. Well, I was always interested in history, and he gave me this book, which is quite heavy going actually for a fourteen-year-old. But I was, you know a very nerdy 14-year-old, and, and I just fascinated by it. I was just enthralled by it. I, it under, under the spell, there's this, this incredible story of this, this, this wonderful, magnificent city, Athens. And, and even though Thucydides was an Athenian who was exiled by his own city, he was, he, he was very critical of how his city acted. But you could, his love of his own city comes through. Um, it, was, it was just... Amazing, and, 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 and the horror of what happened, how this incredibly great, creative, wonderful city, producing such ma- magnificent minds, not only as, as Thucydides, who's one of the greatest historians of all time, but also in terms of architecture and theatre and philosophy in so many ways, such an incredible city, and they went to this dreadful, dreadful, damaging war, and then eventually lost, largely through stupid reasons, and never, never recovered again. Though for a for two and a half thousand years, we've been in awe of the, the culture that it created and why that happened, what happened, what went wrong. That, that, that really, really got to me. And from there, I, I, I got to Rome. You know, why did Rome fall? Why did a civilization so powerful? It, it was absolutely obsession to me. I was reading book after book after book after book on this subject. And I, I mean, we had to, for, for school, we were supposed to show what we were doing some reading. And I used to read, of course, everything science fiction anything but then for any for any book I'd always put down my history books and I remember my history teacher my English teacher looking at it he said why don't you read something naughty for a change oh really because there was all these incredibly heavy history gnomes you know the history of the late Roman Empire from from 280 to 370 AD this is my typical adolescent reading but this 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 question what happened why so that question you've gone on to form a whole obviously biohistory was based it's based on that initial question back yeah. when you're 14. I asked myself a question at the age of 14. Why does it happen? And I spent, I spent basically the rest of my life, in effect, trying to work out what happened, which I think I understand now, and what to do about it. Because the same thing is happening to our own society. I know you don't like gifts, but that was from a gift back when you were, when you were 14 from um, Harold Richards. So. Mm. And the other book that I read too, I, think, I don't know if I mentioned that, was, was um, The Naked Eight by Desmond Morris. Okay. Which was which was um, basically, even though I you know I I looked at it more recently and there's virtually nothing in it I would agree with, but the uh, it's very outdated in certain ways. But the whole idea that you can understand human behaviour in terms of biology, and I would have been 
Actually, I remember buying that book in Sydney. I actually hitchhiked up to Sydney. That's what I used to do when you I was... You hitchhiked to Sydney? I hitchhiked to Sydney because I had a lot of relatives in, in Sydney. So how old were you then? I would have been about 15. 15? You hitchhiked to Sydney? Yeah. Wow. I did that several times, actually. Really? Yeah. I used to just head, head off hitchhiking. Which is unheard of now. <laughs> it would be absolutely unheard of now. Well, my, well, my parents didn't think. It was sort of like a family tradition. I remember I was 15 years old. I think I was in Sydney, and I and I came in and I saw this book, and it's got like naked people on it. People on it. So that was interesting <laughs> enough to, to a 15 yeah, year old. Absolutely. But yeah. you know, and I read it, and I was fascinated by the idea that you could understand human behaviour in terms of biology. So those two ideas, the fascination with history and the decline of civilizations, and also the idea that biology had some part of it. And see, that was another a question that, that occurred to me in those days too. This is this is stunning questions. Why does selection decline? And the second thing, why is it that for any animal, kind of animal, the more food they have, the more fast population grows. In humans, it's the absolute opposite. The wealthier you become, the more the population tends to shrink. That's happened during, during the, ancient, the Roman Empire, for example. The population actually went down. And it was obvious even then that the, the wealthier populations tend to decline. Now this, now this sort of curiosity, because for a 15 year old, that's quite, I would say it's very advanced, I'm just comparing what, it was, what I was doing at 15. Where do you, was that something that your parents built into you, that curiosity, they always giving you books mm. to read, or obviously when you were 10, they took you to, to, to historical sites and educated you about oh, it? Oh yeah, my family was very, um, very intellectually strong. You know, we'd watch it, in those days, we didn't get a television until I was probably about 16 or 17. But when we did, We'd go and watch something on TV about some historical thing. And during the ads, which, of course, we had to watch in those days, my father would grab the encyclopedia and he'd read to us what was happening really. So I, I got the habit too. I still do it, actually. I annoy the hell out of everybody. But mm. I always tell them what's, anybody, what's wrong with the history they're watching. This didn't happen. That wasn't that. And that's why I didn't do that and stuff like that. So that's, that's a pattern from my early stage. But our, our family dinner table was a, was a hotbed of discussion and all kinds of things like that. Um, sometimes argument too, obviously, which is why I ended up not speaking to my father for six months. But but did you look back on that and see how good that was and how, oh, how yeah. like influential that was into who you are now? Very important, yeah. extremely important. It's not just so much that it's not the appearance. I said it said you should read something. It's just they were interested, especially my father. They were interested in these things. My father would always talk about you know why the Carthaginians were defeated by the Romans and so forth and what the lessons were from that and. and those kinds of things. It was just part of my childhood growing up. It was just normal to us to, to discuss such matters. Hmm. Now, I want to talk about in your time in Melbourne. So your dad was at CUB um, and then lost his job because of the 18th century management style and went into um, do what I found was very interesting reading was the, con the consulting business side of it, hmm. where he was investigating murders and fire investigations. Yeah, which I think was quite quite astounding. Forensic engineer. He was particularly good on fires. So he would he would. Um, he would actually bring home a whole lot of stuff and set fire to it in the garden. Really? Yes. All these weird plastic things, and he's, he set fire to see whether they burn or not. <laughs> and, and one time, and he used to. Uh, one time, I helped after I I learned to drive. He actually got me to to um, drive down the road past our place and then put the brakes on. And, and, and to just see how long it would take me to stop from a certain speed <laughs> and whether there was any skid marks and yeah, stuff. Yeah, so yeah. I remember helping Dad with that kind of stuff wow. too. And solving murders. I don't know if they talk about it in the book, but there was one case where this um, um, young guy, young man, was actually, um, he'd been to, he was in an accident. And he was, um, according to the police, he was drunk. He smashed, he, he was driving too fast. 
he smashed into a tree and his fiancée, who was with him, was killed. So this was basically open and shut case. This is, this is negligent homicide. You're going to spend a decade in jail. And the, and the defence lawyer just said, look, I'll call Tom Penman to see if he's got anything to say about this. And Dad went and investigated it, and he found a few interesting things. First of all, he'd been having um, dinner with his wife's, his, his fiancée's parents, who were meth. His father was a Methodist minister. So you can imagine how much alcohol he was drinking. Mm. And then my father got him to ask, the lawyer to ask the, um, the person who came and, and did the blood test when, at the site of the accident. I said, when you took the blood test, did you swipe the area with alcohol, which you normally would for an injection to stop infection? Mm. He did. Well, that completely accounts for the alcohol reading in the injection because when you're taking a blood alcohol, you can't use alcohol on the skin because it messes it up. And the other thing did, he worked out. Now, the police said that he was speeding at such and such a rate. My dad actually showed that he could have been travelling well within the speed limit. It was an accident with the car. The guy got completely off it. His life would have been totally ruined if it hadn't been for my dad. Mm. That's very well, very significant. It's quite, I don't know, just taking you back to that thing, I could imagine you driving down the street to spe- to, to, and slamming the brakes and then you come in and measure, measure the skid marks, right, and then say, what speed were you doing in the car? Mm. Did the neighbours any, any say anything about that? Because you were in North Bourne at the time, which is quite an affluent area. Did they say, what the hell is this guy doing at the front? No, it wasn't that obvious, really. <laughs> The, the thing that actually, when my neighbours got up, um, interested one time was when I was, um, actually I was, inter- I was auditioning to be the villain in the, uh, in the school play. Right. And yeah. so one thing I had to do was a fiendish laughter. Ah, so yes. I went into the shed down, under the house and, and uh, into the workshop and, and I practised my laughter and the way he was saying, what, is that? What, what, are you, what are you listening to on television these days? <laughs> it was just this. Yeah, we, we've seen the laugh a few times on Jim's life. That's where it comes from. Yeah, I, I was Munro Murgatroyd. Munro Murgatroyd. I know that name very well now. <laughs> Munro Murgatroyd. We haven't heard it for a bit. But now I want to touch on that time. You went to Melbourne Grammar as well, yeah. So which was a pretty, think, pretty private Top school? Yeah, yeah. My, my, my parents had this view of education. You got the best school. They just looked up the best academic schools in the country. And, uh, and I think you were in the elite in, group or something, weren't you, as well? The elite class. Yeah, I, I did okay at school. Mm. I mean, I, I didn't socialise or anything. I just used to read all the time, so I guess I was... Yeah. Yeah, because I was reading that. Because yeah, you, you didn't socialise much with other kids, but they always said you were strong of character. And you know you would read a you know be reading them all the time and all that sort of stuff and you'd be arguing with people as well sometimes. Also, also teachers too, of course. <laughs> you arguing to teach? Oh, tell us a bit more of that. Oh, I, 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 I know. I, I just um, I remember when I was in school in Sydney. Um, the uh, we were talking about. I think it was Lord of the Flies, and they were talking about what the significance of the end of the book was. And I said, no, that wasn't what it meant. It meant this. <laughs> I just right. told the teacher. Yeah. One one teacher he actually asked a question and, and it was such an obvious question just to everybody put their hands up and I didn't and I, and he looked at me and he said Penman you're an intellectual snob. <laughs> <laughs> Your own teacher's here. Yeah, that's right. No, but that was, he yeah. he liked me okay, but he wasn't. Yeah, yeah. I probably was a bit. I just wasn't going to ask a question everybody else could answer, so I was kind of like a very obnoxious, precocious kid, you might say. Well, it's quite funny because I was reading some of the descriptions off you and hear from other kids in your school, and someone said that you came off as a bit English cultured which I found was quite interesting, which is one of the comments in here, one of no, the books. Um, no, I think when I, was, when I first went to school, I didn't go to a private school initially. I was in state school, and mm. I had an English accent from my father. Right, oh, okay. So that, that was where he, my, my teachers took a very strong dislike to me because I was this pommy, 
Pommy accent. I didn't have a pommy accent by the time I was I was sixteen or anything. I lost that. Lost it very quickly. Thank goodness. <laughs> I'm a proper Australian. Inside and out. Fairly Aussie. Now I was gonna say here as well, it was I found it quite ironic because I know you're very religious, but during this time you used to argue with a schoolmate, with these you and a schoolmate used to go around arguing with people about religion, asking if they believed in oh, God or yeah. not. Yeah, we had to watch school. I, I used to hate watching. I used to hate organised sport. And we were supposed mm. to go out and support the the, the, the team and barrack and stuff. But <laughs> I was bored with that, so I'd go around quizzing people whether they believed in God and tell them they were idiots if they didn't, why they were wrong. <laughs> when we were in England, when I was ten, eleven, I used to argue with the, the minister there too about things like capital punishment and all kinds of stuff. I was really? a very precocious kid. I was still a sort of a nominal believer in those days. I didn't become a atheist till I was 14 but um, yeah I was I was always ready to argue with anybody about anything including teachers I had no I wasn't I wasn't rebellious in the sense that I wasn't stealing stuff or I wasn't swearing or anything I just I just had my own view and I couldn't care what anybody else thought mm. I'll, I'll argue with anybody minister teacher anybody yeah, and that's they must love the where I was reading this. They said you're quite, just quiet, but a strong character, right? When you was something you didn't agree with, or whatever. I, you would speak I was up. quiet. I was just yeah. I, w- I was not social, but I was very very opinionated. Mm. And I, I, I must have been the most ob- obnoxious kid you could imagine. I really, <laughs> I, I'm still obnoxious, of course, as you know, but still, I really was that kind of. Yeah, well, it's quite interesting. That's why I like to get into this stuff because it's sort of you can tell you know people where you are now. You know, a lot of this stuff. You know, traits you develop or that you exhibit or you show mm. in those formative years does carry through in adult life. Well, I was I was very I was so unsocial that I was I was um, I had no sense of social decorum. I would say the most appalling things. I just had no I had no I still don't have <laughs> no much filter yeah. coming out of my mouth. I'm a bit more. I think you're a lot better than what practice yeah. now. But in those days, I would say things would be quite offensive, and I would offend people, and and I just. I put people off a lot. There was never any intention to offend anyone. It was just that. No, not really. I would just, I would just blurt out with stuff and say things that I thought, and uh, that's right. People get offended. I wouldn't know. Mm. Now, when I, you say when you say practice, is it something you still consciously have to work on, or you think about? Oh or? yeah, I try very hard now. Not, yeah. not, not to say what I think exactly. <laughs> I, I've still got quite a strong temper, so it's very hard yeah. for me to wind it down. That's mm. why I like emails too. You can sort of think about what you're writing down and think: Do I really need to put that? Is it helping the issue? Oh, okay, don't send it. Mm. Now, also, I want to go into as well what I've got another note here. Um, was you uh, love science fiction during during those years as well? And at one stage, you wanted to be a science fiction writer. Oh yes, yeah. How yeah. serious was that, or like, what did you write any books in that sort of genre when you were younger? Well, no, I tried. I tried. I tried. I was that, that was my great career goal in my last couple of years at school. I wanted to be a science fiction writer because I loved it so much. Um, I, I did this um, series of stories called The Road to Geelong, which is about about a sort of a Victoria in, in, in a few hundred years in the future after some nuclear war or something like that when Melbourne was still, you know, glowing, radioactive, ruined, <laughs> this kind of stuff. So Right through Geelong, yep. And, and to do with Martian colony, people coming back from Martian, a Martian colony and that kind of thing. So there's a whole series of stories I was trying to, somebody riding on a giant wombat, for example, which is not very practical, I know, but that was what was all about that thing. And it was all about Bendigo, actually. So it was interesting. We we're talking about going to, to Bendigo. Bendigo mm-hmm. had a great meaning for me because Bendigo was like the like a a, a, a powerful city, and it's one, like one of the city states in which Victoria was was divided in those days, and they were sort of fighting each other. But Warrnambool, Warrnambool, get a mention in it? No, Warrnambool. Bendigo <laughs> was there, Geelong was there, and Melbourne was just ruins. <laughs> <laughs> but that but that was I, I just I used to, used to write and write and write and write, and and I I put. But I, I could never get what I wanted. I could never, I could never, I could never create what I wanted. I just never, never satisfied myself. It's, it's one of my great 
unfinished ambitions that I'll never achieve is to be as is to be a science fiction writer. Well, what well, do you think you could something you could work on it now? Because you've obviously written books now, and you're very oh, you're a very good writer in my opinion. Because for the I'm not just saying that because you're my boss, but the the, the autobiography, bio history, like it's a very there's a oh, great structure to it. Writing, writing is so difficult. It's so difficult. Yeah. I'd love to make a film about some of that stuff one of these days. If I ever had spare resources, it'd be so fun to actually put some of that stuff into a film. Really? I've often thought about that, yeah. Because yeah. a lot of what I used to write was very visual. It was always visual impressions. Or, or very moody, very emotional, emotionally driven. So something you had in your head and you were just trying to basically get it from your head yeah. to the to most Mostly trying to, trying to kind of create the feelings, bring the, the feelings out. Right. Is that something you... like? Is that something whereas if you think, let's say now, you have a bit of time, you could put towards it, you could get something done or...? It's just so difficult. Writing is incredibly difficult. I mean, writer's block I knew all about. Mm. But I, I used to I used to try it for years. I actually learned to touch type um, before anybody. But this is before the age of computers. And the reason I learned to touch type with my writing was absolutely horrible. My handwriting still is shockingly awful. And so I thought I should type. And there was a um, a typewriter sitting on the on the kitchen table. And I and and um, my sister, who was two years older than me, Lynn. Um, I said to her, how do you use this? She said, okay, what you do is you put your fingers here, these are the rest keys, and you do this, 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 this. Then within half an hour, I was touch typing. So I never did this. Within I half always, an hour? Within half an hour, I was touch typing, and, and, I, and I did it ever since. I used to touch type my stories. That's how I learned to type, which was a very great benefit, because some people, a lot of people still do this kind of stuff. And well, I, there's a lot of people in the office who still do the old one-finger thing. Yeah, That's so my typing is very fast, so it's a, it's a gift of my failed ambition to be a science fiction writer ah, okay. in so my was, teens. So do you think you pick up things quickly then? Because I remember reading that. I did read that in. I had it written down. Was you did t- she said you, she went away, then she's come back, and she's seen you just touch typing, which is quite Actually, remarkable. You think about it. touch typing in half an hour. It's just because you get wrong habits, because you start doing this and you, and, you, and you develop habits. But if you from the beginning, the first time somebody shows you a keyboard, it's very quick. It's very, very simple. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You just, you just got positions of the fingers. Mm. Now, growing up, uh, is there anything else you want to maybe that give insights into the book that we probably didn't cover there, just briefly? Because that's from Chapter 1. Was there anything else that's significant that you can remember growing up that you want to maybe mention? Or? It was a painful time, I can tell you. My teenage years were very, very rough. I Obviously, I had conflicts with my father. So I admired my father, but boy, jeepers, did we fight. Um, not that I disobeyed him. My father, you never, ever would disobey my father. Not ever. My kids don't disobey me either. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not as fierce, but you just don't disobey your father. But I, it was it was a really, really hard time. I didn't get on well at school with the kids there. I was a loner, totally involved in books and stuff. I had these incredible crushes on girls, one after the other, you know, fun lasting for a year or two. Never never came to anything. It was It was... It was painful in the extreme. A lot of the desire to be a writer was the desire to express these extreme emotions. Mm. And, and it was a very hard time. But, but everything you said then I think is pretty relatable, though. Anyone watching this, would that's pretty relatable, most of those things you said then. I think that's natural. I think that's normal. In the scheme of things, I can relate that back to myself. You know, that's a very, very natural and normal, I oh, think. Oh, I think teenage boys are, are probably... Mm. Most of them have other outlets, though. They have friends and so forth in a way that I didn't have. I did have friends, but um, Harold Richards, obviously, in Sydney. We were mm. very close. And then, and then in, in, in Melbourne, the last couple of years, I had a friend called Rob Lamb. But I hope to catch up on I just I just for the first time spoke to him in decades during the, the COVID epidemic. So we're going to catch up as soon as we can mm. and just swap notes and stuff. I haven't seen him for... I don't know, 40, 40 something years. I haven't seen him for 40-something years. Yeah, I just made a phone call. Were you mates from high school or was it from... Yeah, yeah, from high school, last yep. two years. We actually, when we got together, we, we, we had one thing in common. We both wanted to be world dictator. 
That was our initial conversation. We both decided we wanted to be world dictator. And we used to have discussions about how you could learn to raise one eyebrow because that was the, if you're going to be a dictator, you have to be able to raise one eyebrow. Really? Did Did you do it? Can you do the old one eyebrow? Mm. Now, you, you might not know this person, but there's an actor and a wrestler called The Rock. And that was his signature move, was doing the old people's eyebrow, the eyebrow, and he used to do it up, so... <clears throat> Yeah, it was fun. And I mean, we were both very anti, anti-religious because this was a, a conservative Christian school. And, and um, so Rob and I got into a lot of trouble because we were always... Like there was a speaker who come along to speak on a Christian topic and we both got up and, and start asking him very pointed questions. Oh, really? right. And that got us into a lot of strife. He was actually um, ex- uh, suspended for a while during the holidays, actually, because it was formal and told to keep away from me as a bad influence. So I was... I used to put up notices on the school notice board arguing for legalisation of homosexuality and all kinds of stuff like that, which didn't go down too well. I used to put them down as... Very forward-thinking, though, like very compared to the times now. It's very, very forward-thinking. Well, I'm, I'm much more, I was much more forward-thinking then than I am now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, regressed in a way. Yeah. I, I have become... Well, regressing depends on what you count regression True. from what. Yeah. But I certainly had, I had very modern views, which would be not out of place at all. Back in the, in the 60s at this conservative Christian school, I was actually um, pretty pretty bullshit if you think about it. Mm. So what we'll do, guys, we'll leave it there. That was chapter one. So thanks for that, Jim. That was chapter one of Jim's story. And make sure every Wednesday night from 7 o'clock we do Jim's live and subscribe to the podcast and stay tuned for next week for edition uh, chapter two. Mm-hmm.